0: Three.
1: Contra is friction.
0: Contra is Contra nuanced. Is nuanced. Contra, Contra is transgressive.
1: Is good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. accessible spaces and designs maintained, and how can paying attention to maintenance challenge our ideas about design as always driven by innovation. In this episode of Contra, I talked to Critical Design Lab member Leah Samples about her work on mapping the infrastructures of accessibility and designing protocols for the maintenance of technologies such as elevators i'm so excited to be here today with leah samples who is a phd candidate in the history and sociology of science program at the university of pennsylvania and also has a graduate degree from vanderbilt university as well which is where we met many years ago welcome leah
0: thank you for having me i'm very excited to be here and talk all things maintenance and access. Yeah,
1: I'm so excited. Um, so, I'm really excited to talk to you because you have been in the Critical Design Lab pretty much since the beginning and you've worked on mapping access and um, kind of brought your own frameworks and uh, ways of thinking about accessibility to that project. And so, I thought we could um, just start with kind of like what the early iterations of mapping access were like, and we can sort of talk through yeah. that and then um, get to your elevator maintenance project too, which I'm very excited to talk about because I tell people about it all the time. <laughs> so now there will be this podcast that I can
0: feel like. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so uh, it was many years ago now that I, mm-hmm. um, you were the first graduate students that I had hired to work on mapping access with me. And it was through um, a funding stream at Vanderbilt through the library called the Library Dean's Fellowship. Um, and so at that point, you were doing a master's degree in community research and action. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, it's correct. Yeah. Um, and so with that project, we were thinking about Kind of a bunch of different things. One was the quality of the data that we were going to collect, but then also a big part of your job was learning how to code and do GIS mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, yeah. So, what do you what do you remember from the early parts of that project <laughs> in terms of like the questions that were coming up and the skill sets and stuff that you were being asked to develop?
0: Yeah, so that project was uh, really exciting for a number of reasons. Um, One, because I was getting my degree in community research and action, uh, I really felt like this project was a good mix of um, being able to really engage the disabled and non-disabled community at Vanderbilt to sort of open up this conversation about what is access, what does that look like um, here on campus, and then how can we, you know, have that conversation and actually develop some tools for um, sort of opening that conversation even wider. Um, So when I think back on that project, um, I think very fondly of the focus groups that we did where we were actually able to talk with different users on Vanderbilt's campus. um, And really think, I think, um, when we think about the word access, not limiting it just to um, disability access. But also thinking about what that means um, for gender, race, class—that um, was that was really exciting. And then when I think back and I think of some of the more frustrating or complicated aspects of the project, um, I think that really comes down to when we collected the data and uh, uh, sort of the quality of that data. And then um, I think as well, just learning to code and learning. Um, GIS mapping and all sorts of these more technical skills that I wasn't super familiar with before I came into the project, I think there's always a huge learning curve. Um, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when I think back um, to the early, uh, you know, semesters of the project where we were kind of, our methods were in part determined by the funding that we had. Mm-hmm. So we had this yeah. funding that was like, we're going to do a GIS project and Really, like um, from a kind of more social science or humanities perspective, the quality of the data was what was most important, and uh-huh. being critical about the data and asking different questions uh-huh. that be on an ADA audit and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but then at the same time, we were sort of met with this monolith of what the technology was that was going to represent this data visually and textually, and how uh-huh. it just didn't it wasn't that user friendly or like, yeah, usable. Um, and I just think about that all the time in terms of, um, you know, what those technologies are created to do, mm-hmm. and how, you know, all the coding that you were learning was so that there could be pop-ups like in this map, right. That, you know, um, but that was sort of not the point of the project either.
0: Yeah. So that was a really interesting process. Um, I think one of the cooler things that we were able to develop from that project was um, the mapathon that we did with undergraduate students, um, and I think that was really neat because I think sometimes when people think of mapathons or doing accessibility surveys, they think it sort of is straightforward, like you develop the survey and you know then you pass it out and people go and do audits. Um, and I think it's really neat because I think that with the event that we did, I think that we were able to sort of um, complicate or problematize that process. Um
1: are there any moments that you remember from doing the mapathons where um those kind of presuppositions about accessibility mapping were put into question?
0: Yeah, I think um we would get a lot of undergrads that, you know, for some of them this was sort of their first exposure. Um a lot of them were able-bodied, not all of them, but but many of them were and I think it was really eye-opening for people to try to even find the accessible entrance on some buildings. A lot of them had never even had to think about that before. Um, And so I thought it was really neat that a lot of the students were able to sort of um, encounter how frustrating it can be to sort of even locate these points of access. Um, So I think that was really um, interesting. And then I think as well, um, I think we were able to sort of Again, complicate what a lot of the students um, thought of as accessible spaces because we were also mapping lactation um, rooms, um, you know, different um, gender bathrooms, et cetera. So I think that was cool too.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting to observe people in that process of like, figuring out what things meant mm-hmm. on the accessibility survey that they'd been given. Mm-hmm. But some of those things were purposefully also kind of open ended or asked questions that forced them to be like, wait a minute, how could I really know whether mm-hmm. there are chemicals in the air or whatever? Right. Um, and then they would come back and say those things and have a discussion about it and mm-hmm. It was really satisfying to watch people learn to ask the questions mm-hmm. rather than just delivering the data. Mm-hmm. And that creates, you know, that's like a separate project, I think, than creating like a usable mm-hmm. or whatever, um, but has really come to the forefront of how we're thinking about this phenomenon more generally is like, how do you create opportunities for people to learn to ask mm-hmm. questions about the built environment? yeah yeah absolutely it's part of like a sts science and technology studies kind of sensibility as well i think um to you know think about the epistemology of material practices like making um and you know we were thinking about that in different ways in that initial project in terms of the you know doing the focus groups to create the surveys Mm -hmm. um, doing the data collection with various groups on campus and things like that um but i wonder are there any other ways that came up for you from that process um that were kind of about asking like what is knowledge about accessibility and what does that look like
0: yeah um i think through that project it made me think that um i don't know i think for me it sort of put into perspective how we oftentimes take for granted uh what access is and um what it means for a space to be accessible and how we know a space is accessible uh i think also you know we were collecting when we did that mapathon we were collecting data about a moment in time you know that day um and then you know we were using that on a map um but again that that data that we collected was just from like this, these couple hours. Um, And so it sort of raised for me, how do we um, collect data and share information about access as something that is dynamic and ever changing. Um, So, I mean, it makes me even think of sort of, this is sort of going off topic, but the bird scooter situation Mm -hmm. um, in Nashville, you know, so we could, you know, map these different points of access, but then those spaces of access get, get interrupted or um their new barriers you know arise right. and so it's sort of made me think like how can we you know whether it's an app or um I don't know just a, what's a way that like we can sort of information share um about access as a dynamic as a dynamic process
1: yeah totally because there is so much data to be collected Mm -hmm. and it is always changing and it kind of, it raises all these questions because you know, as we learned in that process of doing mapping access and engaging with the facilities management folks at Vanderbilt, like they are always collecting tons and tons of data about Mm -hmm. the built environment and it's really for maintenance purposes like they have to Mm -hmm. be able to report um, you know, the status of the door or the bathroom Mm -hmm. or whatever um for all these like federal funding things and it's not um that information is not meant to be usable by Mm -hmm. people on campus or visitors or whomever and but it could be it could be really useful but it's always the reason they don't share it is that it is a snapshot Mm -hmm. and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got like google maps driving like the car that drives around and takes pictures of your house and stuff and you know those get updated at intervals of eight months or i don't even know but um you've that is an apparatus that is able to like collect all this data and do something with it but Mm -hmm. it is also google and everything that goes with that in the kind of surveillance dimensions of it um and so i remember like being really inspired by some more informal ways of sharing access information on campus that i'd seen when i first got there um one was students in um, one of the buildings which is like where all the science classes usually are stevenson um, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a confusing layout a lot of people are like where am i Mm -hmm. Um, but people had created these informal signs that they would just stick to the walls and they were often in different languages too that would be like the lab is this way or the lecture hall is this way Mm -hmm. or whatever Um, and that kind of like directional information sharing is part of like the informal way that we communicate with other people about the spaces that we're in um but we don't often then share it with people that we don't know right it's interesting to think about like what forms that should take and what uses there might be for these kinds of like ad hoc networks Mm -hmm. too of you know, um, like when Mapping Access, at the very beginning of it before um, there were really any students working on it, there was an ice storm and we were having a speaker on campus. And we had to be able to tell people the accessible, like the wheelchair accessible route from parking to get to the speaker and the event without encountering ice. You know? <laughs> so like an ice is such a, you know, it could melt so that was four years ago (laughs) (laughs) almost five actually coming up on five years right because yeah wow um and by the time this episode airs it'll be 2020 uh yeah so in that time you um you know you finished one graduate degree in community research and action Mm -hmm. and during that you were doing work with disability organizations locally and stuff right yeah um, and then you went to UPenn for a Ph.D. program mm-hmm. um, in a pretty different field. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it seems like it's pretty central to the way that you are thinking. So mm-hmm. um, what are some of the perspectives from the field of uh, science and technology studies, which is the field that you're studying now, um, that have kind of shaped how you're thinking about access now?
0: Yeah, so I think this sort of started, you know, my interest in STS and then um, even history of technology and history of science really started at Vanderbilt. Um, it really started in a class that I took with Laura, with Dr. Laura Stark, mm-hmm. um, sort of like an intro STS course. And honestly, when I took the class, um, I wasn't sure I, at the time, I didn't know how influential um that course was going to be to the rest of my career. Um, but I took that course and was really introduced to STS and sort of these ways of thinking about, um, epistemologies and ways of knowing and, um, you know, how we know what we know and these sorts of things. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) um, this is, you know, sort of putting words to a lot of the questions that I've had about disability and that I've had, um, you know, about even the mapping access project, and other projects that I worked on during my time at Vanderbilt. Um, and, you know, that's sort of how I got introduced um, to the program at Penn. And um, so, you know, like I said, I really sort of think of Vandy as the first place that I was really starting um, to think these ideas. Um, and then as I got deeper into the graduate program and moved on from mapping access, uh, you know, to a new project um, with the lab, It was really cool to be able to merge um, STS theories, uh, history of science, and then disability studies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really, you know, think that sort of those three areas is what's really influencing my thinking now, both in products that I'm working on with the lab, which I'll talk about in a little bit, as well as just my broader scholarship.
1: It's interesting how, you know, STS as a field kind of encompasses a lot of conversations that we have around critical design, Mm -hmm. even though they're not always named that way. And about disability, too, STS is kind of like pushing disability studies on issues like um, around technoscience Mm -hmm. and making and stuff. Um, And simultaneously, that disability studies is pointing out some of the gaps in STS thinking. Mm -hmm. um, around power and ableism. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the theories that you're most interested in that come from STS?
0: Um, you know, I think there are some interesting relationships between um, actor network theory and STS and disability studies. Um, obviously, like what you were just talking about with uh, power, there have been some huge criticisms of actor network theory from the field of disability studies and critical disability studies about how that theory sort of levels the playing field um, and sort of doesn't necessarily pay attention to those power dynamics. But I think, um, on the other hand, it can be useful to think with, especially when we're considering, you know, spaces of access, um, objects like the elevator, which I'll be talking about later, um, and the users interact with it. I think there are some interesting ways that we can sort of put in conversation theories of STS and disability studies. I think as well, you know, there's been a recent turn in STS toward maintenance um, and maintenance theories around maintenance and sort of this pushback on the field of history of technology and science and technology studies more broadly, that they've paid too much attention to innovation, that they've paid too much attention to um, the new, toward the exciting, toward the heroes, et cetera um and not enough attention um to sort of the ongoing banal practices that keep our worlds running.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and so that's work that um was kind of offered by people like Lee Vinsel. Mm-hmm. And now there's, you know, a whole conference about it, <laughs> and Times and stuff, and there's sort of like a network of thinking mm-hmm. about that. Um, Yeah, so what do you find productive about kind of maintenance studies for your work?
0: Yeah, so I think, and this sort of goes back to mapping access, I think a lot of the questions that I had coming out of working on the mapping access project and even um, the map that we created was how um, – are these spaces of access that are dynamic, um, how are they maintained when the door, when the um, handicap button breaks on a door, um, who report like, who reports that, you know, when a user can't get in, um, you know, what happens? Do they just not go to class? How do they alert somebody? Uh, So, yeah, so actually a lot of my initial questions and thinking about maintenance came from the mapping access, access project and in a lot of the focus groups, students would talk a lot about this. They would say, like, a lot of their biggest frustrations came from um, breakdowns and the repair is not happening um, fast enough. So I think that's sort of where my interest, interest in maintenance came from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something
1: that you said kind of reminded me that, like um... – You know, maintenance is especially helpful when we're talking about access and infrastructures. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we're talking about like a building or whatever, we assume it's kind of this one off thing. Mm -hmm. But in a planned space like a campus. Um, You know, there are all these parts, and they're connected, and there are people who are supposed to be clearly in charge of different parts of them. There are bureaucratic processes, Mm -hmm. etc. And that's where like the majority of the work is actually happening. The majority Mm -hmm. of the work is not the new construction of buildings or kind of like deciding buildings should have different uses or whatever, although that stuff gets lots of publicity. Meanwhile, over here, this other thing is really not working. So um, I think that that's just, like, really important for us to – kind of as a way of talking about scale Mm -hmm. and accessibility, um, that maintenance and that human labor element of it and the kind of social relations that happen around it becomes – more evident when we're talking about like a space that is under a jurisdiction of like Mm -hmm. you know some institution versus like my house or something like that even though my house also requires maintenance it's just like a different it has a different politics yeah um yeah so Let's talk about the project that you've been working on um, for the lab more recently, mm-hmm. which is focused on maintenance.
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I love what you were just talking about. And I think that sort of um, sort of gets at, leads directly into my project. Um, you know, if you think about Vanderbilt and Penn, they're both uh, very old campuses. And so I think when you think about the politics of maintenance, you're also talking about this um, sort of tense relationship between historical preservation um, and maintenance and access. Um, and so, yeah, so being at Penn and being on a, you know, campus that has a lot of um, history, the building that uh, my program was housed in was the, was actually the original um, medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. So obviously <laughs> been around since the early 19th mm. uh, or since the early 20th century, Um we had, you know, there are a, a lot of upkeep and a lot of um, maintenance problems in the building. And uh, I rely on the elevator, it's four floors and um, you enter on sort of this basement level floor. And so i have to climb like three or four flights of stairs to get to my office. And so I was frequently relying on the elevator in the one elevator in the building um, that frequently was breaking down. Um, and even if we want to think about the temporal politics, took a really long time. And so if you think about um a lot of the users in the building that relied on the elevator were frequently having, you know, to plan out, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes um to sort of even be able to get to where you needed to go. Um, and there it even sort of became a running joke within the department. There were frequently emails sent out about um the elevator and it's frequently breaking down and It was sort of through this that I sort of started thinking about, um, I think this elevator would be a really interesting case study for thinking about the politics of maintenance and access more broadly. And so um, when there was an opportunity, you know, for the critical design lab and to sort of expand the lab, um, I started thinking that this would be a really cool project to focus on this particular elevator. Um, And so what I did is I... um, reached out to all the different sorts of users that might interact with this elevator, um, as well as the actual um, people that work for the university that are responsible for maintaining the elevator itself. Um, and I I asked them, you know, different questions about what they use this elevator for, um, you know, who, like, what if they can't get to class, um, et cetera, these sorts of questions. So that was sort of my initial, um, I sort of did these, interviews with them. And then from there, a lot of them referred to um, there being an online maintenance form that you could submit if the elevator did break down. So I, you know, found this form online and um, I thought, well, for the next iteration of this project, I sort of want um, to get feedback from, you know, these 10 to 15 different users about, you know, what do they think of this form? Do they feel like it actually, you know, identifies their needs correctly, et cetera? Um, so I printed out the form and I distributed it um, to them. And I was able to get really interesting feedback um, from from users. And these users, some were undergrads, some were grad students, some were faculty, um, some were maintenance staff, some were disabled, some were not, um, all had different reasons for needing to use the elevator. Mm-hmm. And what sort of um, the different feedback pieces of feedback that I got was a lot of them saying that they felt like this maintenance request form didn't really um, <laughs> allow them to express, you know, how much of a pain in the, like the pain in the ass it was when they weren't able to get where they needed to go. Um, and this iterative process that I had with the users and the form sort of allowed uh, me in, the, in my role in the lab to sort of think broader about these politics of access. Um, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, so the people that you were engaging with, um, they took that forum and offered feedback Yeah, and uh, what happened after that with that feedback?
0: Yeah. So after that, um, I was, we have, we have a lot of different conversations in the lab every week about, you know, how we can sort of think differently about producing knowledge about around access. And one of those that Amy had mentioned was um, I think it was the Journal of Literary Asian studies, is that right? Uh, Asian American literary studies. Yeah, Asian American literary (laughs) studies. um, Had done a similar process um, with the DSM and had provided sort of this uh, hacked um, DSM where they sort of took the DSM and then wrote on top of it, um, you know, individuals' actual experiences with diagnoses. And so that was sort of inspirational for me to thinking about um, this, this maintenance form. So I took the feedback that I got um, and sort of produced a similar type of sort of hacked, <laughs> hacked maintenance form about um, sort of how this was not just a neutral form, but um, a form that was in a lot of ways um, hiding, hiding sort of the uh, politics of access and maintenance that was underlying it. Um, and so that's sort of where I'm at in the current stage of the process is, you know, wanting to think more about what it would mean to, um, to sort of crip this maintenance process and how we might think of this in a more dynamic way
1: so are you imagining um creating a kind of annotated version of the maintenance form to give to the facilities people
0: yeah yeah so they've been pretty receptive um to engaging with me they haven't i haven't sent them the annotated um form yet so that's sort of my next stage in the process is to um sort of see what we can do um yeah and so my yeah so my next stage in the process to sort of think um how we can you know take these bureaucratic processes and encrypt them and think about them differently um yeah and so you know i'm going to be you know writing and reporting a little bit about what these conversations look like with um with the different facilities people um and you know if they're not receptive to you know toward thinking about making maintenance in a different way. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't still, you know, have this conversation and, um, push back and have some different, you know, on the ground, you know, ways of documenting and recording access on campus. Totally.
1: Are you imagining also like redesigning the form or creating the yeah. form?
0: Yeah. So that's, yeah. So if we want to think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, practically working with, um, the facilities people, it would be great if we could, you know, kind of create like a cohort, a focus group or something um, where we could, you know, create a form that was more amenable um, for a variety of users' needs.
1: Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder too what it would be like to create that form as a way of like creating a database of how mm. often the elevator has been broken and who it's affecting and stuff, and then kind of presenting the information also, yeah. um, which I'm sure that the people who are doing the maintenance labor like would actually really like to know and yeah. for them to know. um, Yeah, I've, I've, I'll I'm be really curious to find out about how that all plays out.
0: Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, you're as curious as I am. I'm very curious um, as well. But it's been a really interesting, you know, process because even, you know, this ongoing um, project about this elevator, even during this project has probably been, you know, a little over a year during this time. Um, when I started the project, it was a really old elevator and in sort of the middle of my project, they actually replaced the elevator. Um, and we're really hopeful that this brand new elevator would sort of get rid of all, um, it, the frequent, it, frequently breaking down, etc. but that sort of hasn't happened. Um, mm-hmm. so they have, you know, a new elevator and, I think the next day after they installed the elevator, it broke down, you know, two or three times. So, um, yeah, so it's sort of an interesting story about maintenance on the one hand, but also sort of about the life of a technology um, on yeah, the other. So, absolutely.
1: And it's striking that the brand new elevator, like the innovation mm-hmm. elevator, is the one that was broken and needed fixing. As
0: well. Right, right. Um, yeah, Yeah, and sort of this commentary, even, like, in the emails about, it was sort of, like, this hope that, like, this, you know, this elevator would, um, would we put the old one to, the, you know, to its death, and then this new one would, you know, sort of solve the issues, um, which I think, you know, you could think of as, like, a larger commentary on, like, innovation, and um, even, you know, with disabilities, is there being, like, the singular, you know, fix, and.
1: That's absolutely. And it also is, like, this thing about um, kind of, you know, the broader context or system in which these technologies exist. Like, pretty much any time an elevator is put in, they're still using the same elevator shaft, Mm -hmm. maybe the same kind of pulley system or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's, like, a facelift kind of thing on it. Yes. Um, Yeah, in my building, too, like two or three years ago we got a new elevator and it does break down sometimes. Um, not as often, but the interior of it, it's very inaccessible to me because Mm -hmm. it has something like 42 little tiny, very loudly buzzing led lights that are super bright. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I go to go to work, my office is like up several flights of stairs. Um, if I want to take the elevator, I leave my sunglasses on and I kind of like plug my ears and stuff because it's really sensorily overwhelming. Mm-hmm. and Sometimes I get a headache from it. Um, and actually in the um, – I don't think we've ever talked about this in any of the Contra episodes, but the introduction to the episodes um, where we're all saying like Contra is mm-hmm. whatever – the background sounds of that were actually recordings that I took of the buzz of the lights on yeah. the elevator and then you hear the like floor three or whatever right and it's this juxtaposition of like you know there's blind access because it's clearing mm-hmm. what floor it's on and it's also like really inaccessible for this other mm-hmm. reason um and it kind of forces People so like, you know, I am a person who walks on two legs. Um, and also I benefit from taking the elevator and saving energy and not just climbing up like five flights of Mm -hmm. stairs or whatever. Um, and to have to kind of make decisions about like which one I'm gonna do today based on Mm -hmm. all of these like very severe sensory inputs. Um, and there's usually no space for talking about that around accessibility. Like people would be like what are you complaining about? It's a shiny new
0: elevator. Right.
1: At least it doesn't. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think what you're, no, I think what you're highlighting is, um, another aspect of this project that I think, or another direction I think I could go with this project, which is sort of, um, like what you're talking about sort of when access needs collide. Um, and there, like you said, there have been decisions made about what to prioritize, um, and what not to prioritize. And then also how, you know, the elevator as, as an access space can um, can sort of be this, I don't know, this, this box that you get into that you make decisions about to take or not to take um, and sort of highlight the socialities around access. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like if you're walking with a group of people and, you know, you know, you say you're walking to, or moving into a building with a group of people and, you know, some people choose to take the stairs and some people don't, um, you know, there are some decisions there that are pretty interesting and some judgments about, you know, why you're taking the stairs versus why you're not, or if you have that choice or if you don't have that choice, um, that I think are pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. Have you ever experienced a kind of like direct or indirect questioning of which one you decide to do?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I have access needs and, you know, I I guess technically I could take the stairs, but it would be very, it's very difficult, um, especially, you know, with the dynamics around what direction you up the stairs, like the stairs in our building, there's railings on the right and left side, but no railing in the center. And so depending on if you're going up or down with the flow of traffic, like I need the railing. Um, so I frequently take the elevator. And then and when you're walking in, you know, I've walked in with a group before. And, you know, it's that moment where, you know, they're walking and you're in conversation you're like, well, I'll see you. I'll see you up on the fourth floor. Um, and then people sort of pause and they're like, oh, you know, and, and some people, you know, make this decision of they think that you need um, comfort or they're like, oh, well, I'll ride with you, which, you know, is, is fine. And the other people that might be like, oh, come on, like, you're fine, you know, so they're sort of making assumptions about um, your abilities based on, you know, their assumptions, their heteronormative assumptions around what disability, you know, looks mm-hmm. like, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, like, it can be, like, a frequent um, point of you're sort of reminded, again, about, um, I don't know, sort of reminded about the assumptions that come around, even what disability looks like to to somebody who maybe hasn't experienced, you know, or encountered that a lot.
1: Right. Yeah. So much of, um, the like legibility of disability about people like, um, using an assistive technology, for example, and it's like, you could do that. It may not be very helpful to you. Right. It may just be like a really helpful way of getting people to not police your use of the elevator. Um, and I've been thinking about that so much because there are constantly these campaigns about taking the stairs, you know, to like burn calories or mm-hmm. whatever. And these are, of course, like extremely fat phobic and right. extension ableist um, and directly ableist things. And I kind of in conversations I have a lot of the time where like these sorts of things are normalized, people will be like, oh, well, but it's okay if someone's a wheelchair user for them to take the elevator. Right, And it's like, well, then you have to show that you qualify. Yes. And how yes. do you show that you qualify and what can't be shown? And yes. what if someone is still not satisfied, like the gatekeepers are going to gatekeep and yeah, what are you, gonna yeah. do? <laughs> you pro- are probably familiar with these buildings that are like kind of sustainable buildings mm-hmm. um, where there's even a debit card system for how often you can use the elevator yes yeah um, so that sort of thing I think you know maintenance theory certainly has something to say about that that I think is probably very interesting um, because all of that sustainable building like whatever is Mm -hmm. caught up in like innovation tech speak Mm -hmm. that ignores like how actual users interact with buildings
0: yeah yeah absolutely
1: yeah so I wonder what some other ways might also be to challenge kind of the norms that are set around who is an elevator user Mm -hmm. um, and to do that through design practices like the ones that you've been doing with the maintenance forms
0: Yeah, I know. I've been thinking about this. Um, Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, how do we sort of resist these assumptions about... that are a lot of times centered around ability and, like you said, fat phobia um, with using the elevator? It's sort of... And even, you know, sort of the elevator itself, uh, there's, you know, also policing around, um, well, you know, not too many people can't take it because then that would clog up the elevator for those who really need it um so I've been yeah I've been thinking a lot about like what's something that we could do um to sort of push back on on these assumptions about you know gatekeeping around the elevator
1: yeah and in the example that you just gave too of you know this kind of like resource scarcity around the elevator too um there you know A building could have more elevators or it could have bigger ones but the primary Mm -hmm. reason it doesn't is that elevators are very expensive Mm -hmm. and they are designed with assumptions about who and how many of what type of person and body is going Mm -hmm. to use them so you know a lot of power wheelchair users point out that it's very infrequent for an elevator to be big enough for more than one power wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Um, so if someone also like has a child who uses a power wheelchair or is with their friend, um, or colleague, like then having to wait for the next Mm -hmm. elevator and that's, you know, that's by design. It's not, um, right. It doesn't have to be that way, the same way that like doors don't have to be too small for right. a wheelchair to get in, but they are designed that way. Um, yeah. And then on the flip side of it, there are these elevators that have been designed to be kind of radically accessible in different mm-hmm. ways. Um, like I've seen ones where they're really big, kind of like the size of a freight elevator, mm-hmm. which is really ideal. Um and they have both like the the finger push buttons, but also the roll in buttons. You know those like the really oh, yeah. all kind of strips. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they can be like rolled into or kicked or whatever. Um, you know different placements of grab bars and different mm-hmm. um, ways of announcing what floor you're on and stuff. So this kind of technological object really has the potential to be really like Mm cross-disability access fulfilling um but i i would you know i would want to know about where people get information about their elevator options when they're building a new building
0: yeah that would be very yeah that'd be very interesting yeah
1: and then the placement of them too
0: yeah that's yeah that's another thing i was going to say about even finding the elevator itself um I don't know, it's frequently, you know, as we found with doing nothing access, it's yeah. frequently an issue.
1: Yeah. In some buildings, they're kind of hidden by <laughs> evacuation stairwells. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, they're definitely, they don't have the status of like the grand staircase. Right.
0: Right. Right. That's absolutely true. There are so many buildings at Pan and Vanderbilt that I have wandered around the first floor, like asking random People because it's just not clear, yeah.
1: Which is a huge issue, yeah. And it's kind of like you know that it's an easy fix. Like you could just have some signage, you know? <laughs> or perhaps a map that explains right. where in the building. a <laughs> yeah,
0: full circle. For the map. <laughs> yeah. Um.
1: Have you found any like campus partners that might be interesting to engage with around this project?
0: Um I I haven't yet outside of the disability studies group. Um there's some talk potentially with um the women gender studies group as well. Um but yeah, that's about it right now. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Leah. This was a really great conversation and it was awesome hearing about your project and how it's going.
0: Yeah. This was great. Thanks for having me. Um it's a great conversation and to talk and even reflect on um just sort of where all this started.
1: You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.